KCIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5, Toronto. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Hello and welcome to this special broadcast of The More The Merrier. This is Donna G and I've been hanging out with a couple of folks, Mark Tara and Daniel Garber, and we've been airing special broadcasts on Thursday afternoons. Well, this Sunday I decided to share one of those broadcasts with you. Enjoy Team CIUT at TIFF 2022. Hi, I'm Mark Tara, producer and host of Rainbow Country. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for CIUT Critic Circle. Hi, this is Donna G from The More, The Merrier. And this is CIUT at TIFF 2022. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight, we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. This is Donna G, and welcome to the second episode of Team CIUT at TIFF 2022. Joining me are film critic Daniel Garber of culturalmining.com, and his reviews can be heard on CIUT's Critic Circle, which airs Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Also joining me is Mark Tara, producer and host of CIUT's Rainbow Country, which gives voice to the LGBT community and beyond. Rainbow Country is one of the highest ranking LGBT syndicated podcasts. And I'm Donna G, host and producer of the More the Merrier Arts show that aims to level the playing field when it comes to experiencing film and theater and the arts at large.
Coming up on this special broadcast of Team CIUT at TIFF 2022, film critic Daniel Garber will be sharing his interview with Gail Morris, the director of the Canadian LGBT film Rosie. And Mark Tara chats with award-winning producer Chris Burkett about the documentary Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On. As for me... Recently, I recorded my first Q&A. What does that mean? It means that instead of having my usual Zoom or in-person interview, I sent Maya and the Wave director Stephanie Johns my questions and she recorded her answers and sent them back to me. This is what happens when your director is finishing up her documentary for its world premiere, dealing with flight cancellations, and you're still working your day job. Hi, this is Stephanie. I'm so sorry we weren't able to connect in person, but thank you for making it work. My pleasure, Stephanie, and I'm so glad you're able to do this Q&A with me. Now, I'm watching the film Maya and the Wave, and I'm not a surfer. You are a surfer, but I was scared every time you showed off the cliff and those waves at Nazare. What were your first thoughts when you saw the waves in Portugal? Um, the first time I went to Nazare, I was just in awe. I fell in love with it. It's so spectacular. And you, you walk out on that cliff and you really, your eyes sort of need to adjust to realize how, how big the waves actually are and the scale of it all. It's, it's spectacular. The mist from the waves actually lands on you in the cliff. And I just fell in love with it. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a pretty, um, a pretty spectacular place to spend time and make a film. Stephanie, I'm curious to know how working as a director of photography on the documentary Venus and Serena help you with the filming of Maya and the Way. Yeah, so I worked as a cinematographer on the documentary and that was an awesome experience for me to understand how to work with athletes and understanding their schedules, you know, how they think, their mindset, you know, thinking about when they are open to being filmed and when not, and also to help me understand the pressures that are on athletes pretty consistently and how to um, work with that and not get in the way at the wrong time. So that was a great experience, and um, I think it gave me some good insight into figuring out how and when to film with Maya. It seems as if both you and Maya Gabera's life is one big metaphor for surfing, the personal highs, the lows, the moments of joy happening alongside the moments of sadness. You had a leak in your apartment. Your sister was in treatment for cancer. Her husband died in a surfing accident. And Maya was riding high with Red Bull sponsoring her. And she was a surfing champion. And then a major accident stalled her career and left her with anxiety. Anyone would have understood if you stepped back from the film. Why didn't you? Yeah, so there were a lot of highs and lows in the last decade. It was a 10-year project making this film, both in Maya's life and in my life as well. And I think one of the main reasons that I stuck with it and felt it was important to see the film through was because I really believe in Maya and the message that she has to share. I felt that she's a phenomenal athlete who was not... Uh, receiving the recognition and the respect that she deserved because she's a woman in a very male-dominated sport. And I didn't want to let her down. I wanted to make a great film about someone who really deserved to have a great film made about them. And I think it's, it's an important story for 
women and girls to be able to see a woman who, you know, struggles against the patriarchy and ultimately succeeds in achieving her dream and surfing the biggest wave in the world. So uh, that was my main motivation for sticking with it, and, and I'm glad I did. I'm, um, I'm happy that we have a film now and we can, we can share her story in documentary form. You know, I thought I knew what to expect in your documentary, and I got that. I mean, it's a documentary about surfing, so beautiful cinematography, incredibly high, frightening waves, a beautiful athletic surfer with an amazing talent. But what I didn't expect was the intimacy that you were able to capture with Maya and her family, especially the introduction of her activist father, Fernando Gabera, and her very strong mother, uh, Yame Reyes. The film even veered into mental health with Maya's anxiety after the accident. How are you able to win their confidence? Yeah, Maya is actually a very open and candid person, and that's uh, some of the qualities that I love about her. She was very welcoming when I first asked to come and film her um, back, you know, 10 years ago when she took me on a first surf trip in Mexico. And I remember her telling me that, you know, she had a therapist and she had, you know, she had to go for an appointment with a therapist. And I thought, wow, that's very honest and um direct. That's not something, you know, that an American person would tell you off the bat. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if Brazilian people are more comfortable talking about their feelings and mental health than Americans. That's that's one of my theories, at least. But um, I also think very, Maya is a very um, candid and open person. And I remember telling her um, in the beginning of the filmmaking process, I said, look, I'm going to be around for a long time. This is, um, this this is a long road we're going to be on. And she said, yeah, yeah, I get it. And, um, you know, I don't think she realized that, you know, it was going to be years and years, much less a decade. But um, with with all that time comes a lot of trust. And so I think that is one of the strengths of the film is that we had a lot of trust in each other. And um, Maya was willing to share a lot of her her personal life, which I think is creates a very true and honest, authentic story. The sexism in the documentary is absolutely infuriating. Everyone thinks of surfers as being, you know, laid back individuals. But hearing her male counterparts talk about Maya as a sex object or as a woman who should leave the big waves to men was disgusting. The World Surf League certainly comes across as an organization that is a major boys club, deliberately ignoring Maya's triumphs over giant waves, even though she was outperforming many of the male surfers. Were you surprised at the extent to which they ignored her prowess? Yeah, I was actually surprised because um, I had thought maybe naively that you know, a female first is a terrific human accomplishment, and generally we have celebrated those. We've, you know, we've celebrated the first woman in space. We've celebrated uh, the first woman up Mount Everest. We've celebrated, you know, Amelia Earhart. So, you know, eventually those those individuals have been recognized, and I think um, in this case what I what I didn't understand is that it was probably extremely difficult for those people to make those um, 
first ascents for women in history. And we didn't know behind the scenes actually what it took for that to happen. And that's, um, that's what you're seeing in Maya's film is um, the struggle behind a female first. And, you know, it's probably much harder uh, to make those accomplishments than we realize. So, you know, I, I was surprised and because I think what a great story. Doesn't any, you know, of course we celebrate, um, you know, female triumphs. We've, we've done it historically, but I think this film helps you realize that um, it's actually been quite a struggle for many of those women to become recognized. Stephanie, it must have been incredibly hard to pare down this documentary down to 95 minutes. Could you share with us how you worked with your editor to condense the miles of footage you must have had? We edited this film for almost three years. We had some stops and tarts because of COVID and personal things. The film was edited by Jordana Berg, who's a wonderful editor in Rio, and later by Shannon Kennedy in Boston, two um, brilliant, brilliantly talented editors. So it's really their work shining as far as the editing in the film. Um, as far as the process, it was my wonderful assistant editor, Tamiris Lorenzo, who is um, from Rio, and she watched all the footage. We had a huge amount of footage, and it was very difficult to pare it down. So she um, made the first selection of everything, and that selection was given to uh, Jordana, and Jordana made a first cut of the film, which all of this took at least, you know, a year and a half. And at that point, we had a rough cut, and we wanted to refine it further. So um, Jordana had to leave for another job, and uh, Shannon Kennedy in Boston picked up the film. And, you know, we continued working on shaping the story and the structure and the music and the timing and the pacing and... Um, it was a it was a long road. They worked very hard. I'm I'm very proud of their work, and um, I think that the film is well edited, and it's really due to two two extremely talented, um, very seasoned uh, editors, J Jordana Berg and Shannon Kennedy. Maya and the Wave is making its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Share exactly how you're feeling about that. I am so excited to have Maya and the Wave premiering in Toronto. It's a filmmaker's dream. And, you know, in my mind, there are, there are three premier festivals on planet Earth, uh, Toronto, Cannes, and Sundance. And uh, Toronto is one of the most exciting of those festivals, and it's really a dream to be selected it's an honor and we're just so excited to be here we we can't wait to share the movie we've been we've been working on it so long and we we can't wait to show it to people and um finally have it out in the world we're excited hi i'm mayor john tory and you're listening to ciut 89.5 fm i'm old enough to remember when they called it u of t radio From free events and celebrity sightings on TIFF's Festival Street, King Street West, for the rest of the year, everyone seems to be loving the in-person vibe at TIFF 2022. Hi, what's your name? Uh, Martin Tapasho. And, okay, first of all, are you from Toronto? 
Um, no, I'm from Barrie. Barrie, Ontario. You're here for TIFF? Yes. Uh, have you seen any films? Uh, any of the films here today? Uh, no, not yet. What are you hoping to see today on King Street? Um, uh, I'm hoping to see, I guess, the actors around here, like the, especially for the Glass Onion. Okay, okay, maybe like what Daniel Craig, I think, is in it. Yeah, Daniel Craig, Janelle Monae, um, um, anyone else who's here too. But I love those two the most today. So yeah. Well said. Last question for you. For yourself, what does TIFF mean to you? Um, a festival where movies from, um, I guess, all around the world uh, get to be shown to the people of Toronto before anybody else. Well said, well said. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, no problem. Thank you for the interview. Hello, what's your name? Uh, Jason. Jason, where are you from? Uh, I'm from uh, Scarborough. From Scarborough. And so what brings you to downtown Toronto today? Oh, we always follow tips, especially when my wife influences me to go there. What uh, tip, right? So, and I love taking pictures and videos, so I'm here right now. Okay, and who are you hoping to see today? Oh, I'm hoping to see Janelle Monet and Edward Norton and uh, reunite again with Daniel Craig because last 2019 I saw him here also uh, at TIFF. In 2019, how long have you been coming to TIFF? Oh, start 2011. Yes. <laughs> this is my fifth year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, for us, and then 2019 has a big hype uh, of the TIFF, and then uh, you're planning ahead of next year, and then suddenly pandemic happened, right? So uh, it's okay. Now we are happy we're back. So we're back in person in 2022. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hello, what's your name? My name is Jing. Hello, and what brings you to King Street on a beautiful sunny day like today? Well, I'm here to finally get to see the cast of Knives Out, or aka Knives Out sequel, because last time I was here, I had to choose between them and Tom Hanks, so that's why I'm making up for it. That's why I'm here. Okay, so are you hoping to see, like, uh, Daniel Craig? Daniel Craig, Rand Johnson, Katherine Hahn, basically anyone, everyone, hopefully they all show up. How long have you been coming to TIFF? I've been doing this since 2015. 2015? Wow, that's longer than me. I started in 2018 covering wow. TIFF. Wow, impressive. But then pandemic happened and then everybody had to be away for two years, so good to be back. For yourself, what does TIFF mean to you? Just a chance to enjoy the atmosphere, trying to catch a movie, emerging filmmakers for myself personally, because I'm trying to pay attention to what's coming up in the local atmosphere, not just as much as I would love to join also the Hollywood stuff, but I'm all about the local stuff as well. So. Well said, well said. Thank you for your time. No worries. Enjoy TIFF. Hi, what's your name? My name's Kathy. Hello, Kathy. What are you here on King Street for? Why are you here? I am here standing in line with my daughter. I have a ticket for Causeway, the premiere, which I'm very excited to see. My daughter did not was not able to get a ticket, so I'm standing in the rush line for her where she's hoping to get a ticket. Okay, so TIFF, TIFF 2022. We're back, we're in person after two years of a pandemic. How are you feeling about that? 
I am really excited. This is my first film festival. My daughter is in the film industry. She has a, a company that does events and premieres, and um, she invited me. So I love movies. I am so excited. I've already seen a number of phenomenal movies, and I have a number of phenomenal movies lined up to see in the next couple days. So before I go back to my real life, I'm just thrilled to be here. Any movies that that you've seen so far stand out to you that it, that have made an impression on you? Anything comes to mind? Yes, um, we saw Emily, phenomenal. Um, I know a little bit about Emily Bronte's story, but learned a lot more. Very interesting. Saw The Woman King, and just powerhouse action dynamic. Saw Bros, and Bros is a phenomenal movie. You will laugh, you will cry, and um, I, I recommend everything I've seen so far. Last question for you. What does TIFF mean to you? TIFF means an opportunity for people to come together, celebrate films, and for people in the film industry to showcase their talent, um, a place for new emerging filmmakers to come and make a name for themselves, people that wouldn't be known to get picked up by other studios. It's just a phenomenal um, opportunity for anyone who loves film, works in film, or is interested in film. Amazing. Well said, well done. Thanks for your time. Yes, thank you. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good evening and welcome. It's the opening night. Tonight, we thank you. I am so humbled and so grateful to be here this evening. I'm extremely excited to be here. Thank you all for Holy shit, there's a lot of y'all. Um, My name is Charles Officer, and I'm the writer and director of Invisible Essence, The Little Prince on CIUT 89.5 FM. Coming up on this special broadcast, Mark Tara chats with award-winning producer Chris Burkett about the documentary Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On. Chris Burkett, hi, how are you? Fine. I'm having a good time. How are you? 
I am well. I am better now that I am speaking to you to talk about this new documentary that's part of TIFF 2022, Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On. You are part of this this documentary. What can you what can you tell me about uh, this film? Uh, well, actually, it's the second documentary made on the, the life story uh, Buffy, you know, but, uh, which is an ongoing thing, obviously, because she's still with us. Um, the first one was made by my uh, my wife Joan Prowse. She made the official uh, story life, life story. It's called uh, Buffy Saint Maria Multimedia Life. Um, but they're just doing a new one now, as you just mentioned, on uh, made by White Pine Pictures. And uh, funny enough, they you know they've been um, my my wife and uh, White Pine have been uh, you know communicating a lot because there's some footage that she has from the early documentary which cannot be got again you know because it's you know the person people in the footage have left or you know departed or whatever uh so it's uh you know it's a bit of a collaboration which is really cool and you are you are part of this documentary you're in the documentary but i believe you're also working on the music yeah uh buffy kind of insisted you know uh, i mix the all the live the music for the documentary um the, the music which, which um consists of her performances not the incidental music i don't know who's doing that but um she wanted me because i've been working with her since 1992 and we have a great relationship and we understand each other uh she she insisted that i actually was involved in uh, the presentation of her as an artist so which is uh, live concert mixes and all that sort of thing is the film done have you seen it uh, I've only seen rough director's rough cut mm. <laughs> that's what I've been working to uh, it's kind of interesting because um, some of the songs have uh, they're kind of a combination of various concerts which is which is a real uh, interesting thing for me to achieve I had to combine the sound from a, a London concert with a sound from a Massey Hall concert with a sound from a New York concert and uh, make them all sit together and and sometimes jo- actually join that sound onto the released CD version of the same song. So you can imagine what it was, uh, what it was like, but uh, it all worked out really well and everybody's happy. So, you know, they're going with it. Well said, well said, well done, well done. <laughs> yeah, it's a, te- it's a techie thing, you know, but <laughs> it's not like songwriting, but you know, but it's, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it takes a lot of, a lot of skill on Pro Tools, which is the system I'm using. You've produced a number of Buffy St. Marie's albums, including 2017's Medicine Songs, which includes the track Carry It On, which is the title of this documentary. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier about meeting uh, Buffy St. Marie back in the early 90s. How did you meet Buffy St. Marie uh, originally? Well, I met her in the office of Ensign Records in London. Ensign Records was a label run by Nigel Grange and Chris Hill. Nigel Grange is uh, Lucian Grange's brother, and Lucian Grange is the, the CEO of Universal. So they're quite a powerful music family. I've been producing records for Nigel for some time. I was, in fact, the Ensign in-house producer, so I got to work with uh, Sinead O'Connor and Bob Geldof and some of the Ensign acts. I, I worked with them. Uh, and then one day Nigel called me and said, uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to laugh at this. He said, um, guess what, Chris? I've just signed a legend. And I was, uh, I got all excited. He said, I want you to produce, produce it. And I, was, I said, great. Uh, who is it? 
and he said, it's Buffy St. Marie. And I said, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> because, we're, I, you know, I was, I'm European. I am from London. And uh, I'd never actually, I'd know, I didn't know about Buffy and her work very much. And, you know, this is the early 90s we're talking about, right? Uh, and I didn't really know much about her because she's more, you know, she's big in Canada and, and the States, but not a lot, apart from the, 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 the song uh, Up Where We Belong, which is kind of an international hit. Huge hit that called. she co-wrote. Yeah, that's right. So Jack Nietzsche, I think, had a part to do in that, her, her ex. But uh, um, she, it was, you know, I didn't really know who Buffy was. And so, I, you know, she came, she flew over a couple of days later, you know, and uh, I met in the office, in, in sign office in London. And uh, we got on really well. And then the interesting thing about this whole thing is that uh, Buffy said, well, I live in Hawaii and you live in London. She said, this is going to, this, this album is going to be difficult in terms of, jet lag you know we're going to be i'm flying over here i'm going to be zonked out for four days and you're going to the same way that way you know it's going to be really difficult so let's see if we can work out a way that we can start this album you know without flying all over the place which is great for the carbon footprint by the way you know so buffy's always been environmentally conscious anyway so anyway we she had a techie uh, boyfriend called roger jacobs who lived in hawaii and uh, I had a techie engineer called uh, Ian Plested who worked at my studio in London. And so between them, me, me, Buffy, Roger and Ian, we worked out how to get Buffy's keyboard files all over to my studio in London from Hawaii. Uh, and this had never been done before. We were the first people to achieve any kind of music transfer over the pre-existing web. Was, the, the server was called CompuServe. So that was not, you know, that was the only... And it was done by modem. You remember, remember the old modem things? You know, might be before your time, but <laughs> it, was, uh, it wasn't uh, the, the information, digital information that we, the way we know it. It was, it was kind of a screeching sound came over mm, the phone. And it yeah. Went the and that, so that was uh, so. Buffy sent the whole, the whole, the, the whole coincidence and likely stories, basic work in progress stuff that from her written the songs she had written. She sent that all over to me in London. Um, it's all keyboard. It was a very keyboardy album, so it's all keyboards at the time. So I downloaded it. I mirrored her equipment in my studio in London, and then I burnt all that onto twenty-four track analog, which I had the machine there in my home studio. And, uh, and then I took the tapes. It's those days. It was big, heavy reels of tape. You know, I took them over to um, Hawaii, and Buffy did not have a twenty-four track machine to play the tape. So we went to um, Steely Dan studio on Maui and, and uh, continued working on the album, vocals, drums, that sort of thing, you know. So that's how the album, the album was born on the web and uh, Billboard magazine did a big article on it because it uh, we were the first known people to actually start an album on the, pre, the pre-web. Mm. Wow, trailblazers. Yeah, exactly, yeah, we got one down in history. Chris Burkett, <laughs> who knew? Who knew? I, uh, here's something that I personally did not know. Elvis Presley, uh, Roberta Flack, Barbara Streisand, they all have something in common. Uh, until it's time for you to go with Buffy St. Marie's song. <laughs> They've all recorded Buffy St. Marie's music. Yeah, exa- exactly. Elvis, did, uh, Elvis uh, Presley did, to Barbara Streisand. Who, yeah. again, who knew? Who knew? Well, it's, uh, Elvis actually was quote, was uh, quoted as saying that uh, until it's time for you to go was his favorite love song. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And of course, she co-wrote that huge hit, uh, Up Where We Belong, uh, Jennifer yeah. Warren. And I think uh, 
Joe and, Cocker. And Joe Cocker, thank you. That was part of a, yeah. a huge movie. And what yeah. was it, Officer and a Gentleman? Yeah, so that movie was quite a hit, but the, the song was massive. Huge, you know? huge. Yeah, it really, it really, it really uh, made a big wave for Buffy. And, you know, you know, as you know, as you know, she's she's been a you know a, a campaigner and a pioneer for indigenous rights ever since she started singing. You know, and before so, and uh, and she never really uh, people really never took her seriously because they couldn't believe that you know a pretty a pretty young indigenous girl could have such strong political views, you know. And so she wasn't taken seriously for a long time. She even she even got blacklisted for a while by the Nixon administration. So so it's uh, you know her her music was um banned from the US radio radio play in the US is banned so for some time. So it was, uh, she had, she had it tough, but she didn't give up. She kept going and now she's beginning to be you know, recognised for what she is, and because of uh, you know, truth and reconciliation that's happening here in Canada, uh, her time has come. You know, so I'm very happy for her. I feel really, really grateful to you know have the the honour to work with her too. So th- again, the the album Medicine Songs in in 2018 it won the the Juno Award for Indigenous Album of the Year and won the yeah. the best folk album of the year at the 2018 Indigenous Music Awards mm-hmm. you were instrumental in that cuz you produced that record yeah uh, what does that mean to you to have produced to have created an album of the year what does that mean to you because you are a musician you're a producer but you're also an artist as well yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah I was, uh, well, I was very obviously very happy. To, to, I was at the Juno Awards when she uh, she beat uh, she beat Drake. You know, he was supposed to get it and she got it. So, so I was really pleased about that. Not that I got anything against Drake, but you know, I felt that Buffy deserved it. And uh, but we, you know, it wasn't the first Juno that was um, won for the work we did together. Also, we had the Juno for running for the drum. And uh, also, and, and also, put the a Polaris Prize for uh, Power in the Blood. Uh, so you know, it's just, um, it's a few a few prizes been notched up by Buffy, and uh, you know, it's really good. I'm very happy for her. You know, I, I met my uh, my wife, the, the woman that I live with now, Joan Prowse. I met her because of Buffy Saint Marie, uh, because uh, Joan, uh, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, she produced and directed. Buffy's first official life story documentary. Now they released that in two thousand and nine, I think it was, uh, with the album that me and Buffy had just made called "Running for the Drum," which is the predecessor to "Power in the Blood." And uh, I was playing guitar for Buffy at the time, and we so we played at Massey Hall for the release. And coincidentally, the they, they release also was uh, also part of the release was the official life story documentary so they did a double package you know the album and the dvd and uh, so joan the person that had been calling me since 2008 with questions about how i did this and that with buffy you know to put into the documentary i finally met her in person in the green room at massey hall after the show and uh, and then we stayed in touch and fell in love and you know that's how i got that's how i'm in canada so i'm in canada because of buffy basically <laughs> it's a love story <laughs> 
When when audiences see this new documentary, Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On, what do you hope audiences come away with? What would you like what would you like to see audiences come away with after seeing that film? Um I'd like to see them come away with increased awareness of the need to end separation on this planet. This is one of the chief problems with humanity is that we're separate. We don't accept people from other races, other colour, other cultures, other social status. It's all we're all separate, and it's uh, separation is a separatism. I would call it is the chief evil, and I think this. One of the things that this movie will do, it awaken, it will help to wake people up to the fact that we need to be inclusive in our, in our appreciation of humanity. If you look at this planet from outer space, you do not see political boundaries and cultural boundaries and social boundaries. You see a one humanity living and breathing on a beautiful geosphere globe, you know. And uh, that's the way we need to start thinking like that, you know. And I think this movie might help people to do that because but me and Buffy are on a uh, similar path she, she introduced me to some wonderful teachings which changed my life I won't go into that now but uh, and, and that's uh, so we we have the same we're trying we're kind of doing the same job and, and she's she's a lot further on than I am because she's been doing it longer um, but it's uh, it's the same thing you know and, it's, and the, the aim is to is to, is to make humanity uh, it's, to, it's to get across to humanity the uh, truth, beauty, and goodness, and compassion, and love. You know, love is the chief energy of the universe, which makes everything work. And we kind of block that love in us in our in our ordinary human relationships. There's a blockage to it, and you can't block it. You can't block energy because if you do, it's like a blocking water in in a river. It will create huge pressure, and that pressure is is uh, dis-ease you know disease this disease is nothing other than dis-ease not at ease and uh, so we have to let that love that love flow and uh, that's the that's one of the ways to do it. I mean John Lennon sang about it you know so it's, uh, it's not new it's not news but you know it's uh, we have to be reminded of this as a, as a human race we tend to uh, you know divide ourselves all the time so so I think hopefully this movie will get that uh, that message across to people and, and uh, she, you know, also I think it, on a on a personal level, it will inspire some people to be to get on the evolutionary path, which we're on anyway, but to get back on it and try and be better at what they what they do, because uh, Buffy's a great example of that. You know, she's she's a you know, she's a prime example of beautiful spirit is manifested and has grown through adverse conditions into something, into a gorgeous flower, you know, a bit like a, how a lotus works, you know, the lotus roots are in the mud, dark mud, you know, but it goes through, climbs through the water and this beautiful flower comes out at the top and that's kind of what we are, you know. Chris Burkett, well said, powerful words, powerful no, words. That's how I feel. So. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being on the show as always, Chris Burkett. Thanks very much. Anytime.
my teeth as it is. So take heart and take care of your language. Life is beautiful. Toronto. Coming up on this special broadcast of Team CIUT at TIFF 2022, film critic Daniel Garber will be sharing his interview with Gail Morris, the director of the Canadian LGBT film Rosie. Hi, this is Daniel Garber, the movies for CulturalMining.com and CIUT 89.5 FM. It's the 1980s in a working class neighborhood of Montreal. Fred is an artist whose day job is working at a sex store. Adopted as a child, she ran away from home at 16 and never looked back. Now she's best friends with Flo and Mo, two streetwalkers who make up her current family. But she's thrown for a loop when a social worker shows up at her door with a six-year-old girl who says Fred is her closest living relative. What? She tries to explain she's close to eviction, living hand-to-mouth. She's a francophone while Rosie only speaks English. And she knows absolutely nothing about raising a child. But who can resist a cutie pie like Rosie? Rosie is a new feel-good comedy drama about life on the edge in 1980s Montreal. It deals with chosen families, marginalized groups, homelessness, and indigenous and queer people in urban settings. Both Rosie and Fred were adopted as indigenous kids into white families. The film is directed by actor and filmmaker Gail Maurice. It may be her first feature, but you've probably seen her unforgettable roles on TV shows like Trickster and in movies like Night Raiders. Rosie is having its world premiere at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, on September 9th at 8 p.m. And I'm very pleased to have Gail here via Zoom to tell us more about Rosie. Hi, Gail. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Rosie, your first feature is set in Montreal in the 1980s with much of the dialogue in French. Why this time and place? And where were you in 1984? Oh, wow. Okay, so I set it in uh, Montreal in the 80s. And in 84, I was in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at the university, and I was coming out as a uh, uh, 
uh, was coming out as lesbian woman, and I never realized um, that I was because I grew up in northern Saskatchewan in a Métis village, and I never had the opportunity to explore anything of my sexuality in that way. So um, why I chose um, to write a bilingual film is because my language is Michif, and which is a mixture of uh, Cree and French. There are only a little over a thousand speakers in the world, and I'm one of them. So I wanted to um, um, highlight that and be able to talk about that in Q&As. Uh, not a lot of people in Canada or in the world, but in Canada as well, know anything about the Michif language. And I wanted to say that um, I wrote uh, I wrote. Uh, a bilingual film because I wanted to highlight that uh, part of my culture is I'm half French and I'm half half Cree, which is why I have um, Morris is my last name. Um, and I wanted to uh, set it in Montreal because uh, I talk themes in my films are isolation, um, alienation, and and family and identity. And I wanted Rosie, the little girl, to be. Uh, thrust into a world which she not only didn't understand uh, with the language, but it was also very um, alien to her. Like she couldn't, she wouldn't be able to read the the French signage, for example. And um, the characters uh, Fred, Flo, and Mo all sound different than her. So that was also part of why I said it in Montreal. Rosie is a six-year-old girl who has a terrible fear of abandonment. The worst thing that can happen to her is to be left alone. So she adopts a family of her own, including Fred, Flo, and Mo, who are sex workers. So what is meant by a chosen family? What's a chosen family? Chosen family is basically whoever, if, if for example, Rosie, um, you know, is part is a product of the 60s scoop. So, and the records uh, um, to find her family were all destroyed. She has no choice but to uh, embrace and and uh, and survive. And she does in the best possible way by finding true love in her chosen family. And that's basically what it's about is, um, you know, life, uh, sometimes life, um, you know, we're not a lot, we, we, we don't have the opportunity to spend our adults days or, or any days with uh, our biological family. So what we do and, you know, we're, we're um, it's, it's only normal, natural, I guess, where we want family in our lives. And, you, you know, as adults, as children, we find chosen family when, if we don't have biological families. I just wanted to show that, um, you know, people can love each other no matter uh, where they come from and, you know, their backgrounds. Uh, that's why I wrote um, the characters as I did. And uh, I just wanted to correct as well, Flo and Mo are not trans. They, there's okay. no, uh, yeah, Flo and Mo are uh, simply Flo and Mo. They, in my language, in Cree, uh, Mitch, if there's no gender, there's no he or she. So I've spent uh, a lot of time um, in, in the past couple of years trying to um, define who they are for people that were always trying to put them in a box and they don't belong in a box. They're simply Flo and Mo, two, two spirits, human beings who happen to um, love wearing women's clothes. And, and that's um, um, from my Indigenous perspective, which is how the story was written.
Rosie is very good at making friends, including a guy named Jigger, who she sees lying on the sidewalk. He's indigenous and he sleeps outdoors, but she sees Jigger and the movie presents him in a different way. He's not portrayed as lost or ruined or pitiful, but entirely differently. So can you talk about the character Jigger and why is this portrayal so important? Um, to me, um, I love Jigger. He's one of my favorite characters in the movie. And um, I always, um, part of this, the themes of Rosie is there are, uh, there are no people that are disposable. There are no people that are less worthy than anyone else. Everyone has beauty, everyone has power, and everyone has strength. To me, Jigger is the most, is the strongest um, in his cultural identity. He's the strongest. Uh, person in Rosie's life and he's also uh, the one that's most grounded which is why I have him sitting on the ground for uh, most of the film and it's to symbolically show that he is um, connected to who he is and he's sharing that knowledge with Rosie and in no way is he pitiful in no way is he less than in no way is he weak he's actually very strong the film's called Rosie but it could just as well be called Fred since it's just as much about her. She's wonderfully portrayed by Melanie Bray. So why did you cast her and where did the character Frederic or Fred come from? Uh -huh. So uh, Fred, I mean, Rosie the feature um, originated, like how I, it began was I made a film, Rosie the Short, and it screened at the Imaginative Film Festival in 2018. So at the time, uh, the Imaginative and the Harold Greenberg Fund were coming up with an, an inaugural screenwriting program, and they invited Rosie to be part of that. So I was able to develop the short into a feature film. And Fred is based on uh, my partner in life as well. So she, I, I, I just took the qualities of uh, my partner, Melanie, and it, uh, infused them in Fred. And I wrote... Uh, the short in Melanie's um, parent parents' home in Montreal, in in the closet. Her dad had a closet uh, where which he made into an office. I just shut myself in there for a few days, and that's how the short was born. And from that, I was able to uh, expand on her character, and I wanted to make her an artist that um, saw took other people's junk and made beauty out of it and made art out of it, which again is a metaphor and the theme of the film is there is uh, uh, no trash. There is, there's actually beauty in, in trash. You know, there's beauty all around us. Yeah, Melanie, Melanie Bray is also uh, the co-producer and she very much um, was part of the creative process. She, uh, yeah, she, she uh, helped me with the casting and we were able to do chemistry reads. Uh, we found Rosie, the little girl, by going to uh, First Nations communities uh, in Ontario. And I was able to do um, readings with uh, uh, Melanie and Karis, who plays Rosie. Well, there's a scene, speaking of Rosie and Fred, there's a scene in the film where Rosie is literally torn from Fred's arms. It could have been taken from a painting by Kent Monkman. And anyone in Canada who pretends they don't know about the horrors of residential schools is lying. But another issue is less well known and runs through the core of your film. 
I'm talking about the 60 scoop. So can you explain to listeners what the 60 scoop was and its effect on indigenous families, languages, cultures, and how it affects the characters in your film? Yeah, so for example, Rosie's mom was part of the 60 scoop and it also shows like, uh, so the 60 scoop is basically uh, the government gave the rights uh, to even doctors and and uh, social services to actually go and physically take children from indigenous uh, families, indigenous homes. I have to, why I wrote this is I have two siblings that were forcibly taken from my mother's arms right after birth without my mom, uh, without my mom's consent. So, um, and I wanted to pay homage to these children that were taken away and who will never have an opportunity. I'm gonna cry, sorry. will never have an opportunity to know their families and so I wanted to be able to talk about this in a way that was um, seen through Rosie's uh, experience because Rosie will never have that chance to find her 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 family because of destroyed records and which is why Jigger is also such a beautiful character for me is because she's that connection to her, her culture and her, her heritage. The 60s food has denied so many people the ability to be connected to their culture, to their language, to their people. And it's, 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 this show is written for those survivors, you know, that they're doing the best that they can. And that's also part of why, you know, they have no choice but to have a chosen family to support them in life. Finally, despite the serious topics it deals with and the fact that most of the characters live precarious lives, Rosie is essentially a fun comedy and a feel-good movie. So why did you make Rosie essentially a light movie, not a heavy one? There's so much um, laughter in Indigenous communities. For example, at a wake, you know, at a funeral, we're, it's not morbid. It's it, it, it's we actually uh, have a three-day wakes. We play cards. We tell stories. We laugh. Just because there's sadness in the world, it doesn't mean you ha you can't have laughter. And that's exactly um, why I made Rosie. Um, it has poignant pieces where you're crying, but then the next moment you're laughing. It's because that's how I grew up. And there's hardships in life. We're kicked and we're um, beaten, but at the same time, we can laugh about it because that's just the way we are. We're, we're resilient and we can take a, a licking, but keep on kicking. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's a great movie and thanks so much for talking with me, Gail. Oh, thank you. Gail Maurice's first feature film, Rosie, is having its world premiere at TIFF on September 9th. This is Daniel Garber, the movies each Saturday morning on CIUT 89.5 FM and on my website, culturalmining.com. The sound of your city, CIUT 89.5 Toronto. Thanks for listening, everyone, to CIUT at TIFF 2022. Mark, how can people find out more about Rainbow Country? Thanks, Donna G. You can find me and Rainbow Country right here on CIUT, Tuesdays, 
11 p.m. And Daniel Garber, where can people find you on CIUT? Thanks, Donna. You can hear my movie reviews and interviews on CIUT Critic Circle on Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on Twitter at Cultural Mining and on my website, culturalmining.com. I'm Donna G from The More The Merrier. You can find me Sundays, 1 p.m. on CIUT.FM. My socials are at TMTM with Donna G on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Taking us out is a song from In the Mood for Love. It's called Yumeji's Theme. <laughs> <laughs>